Hello, and welcome to this episode of Reflections from the Front, The Experiences of Women Veterans, a podcast created by VA History Office interns Parker Beverly and Hannah Nelson. In this edition, we will be speaking with Colonel Greta Kammermeyer. She first joined the military at 19 years old, serving as a nurse in Germany, Vietnam, and the U.S. Colonel Kammermeyer has an expansive military career and served as an advocate for LGBT rights of service members. She has written an autobiography, Serving in Silence, that traces her story. This was developed into a television movie of the same name produced by Barbara Streisand, starring Glenn Close in 1995. I was born in Norway in 1942 under Nazi occupation. My parents worked with the underground there, and so sometimes I became a decoy. Uh, for their activities. Uh, we, my father was a neuropathologist and was the first Norwegian to get a Rockefeller Fellowship. And we went to Boston for nine months right after the war, uh, then returned to Norway. And he was subsequently invited to come and work at the uh, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington, DC. So we immigrated then in 1951. Uh, I was nine at the time, and uh, two of my three brothers were also born in Norway. So the, there were three of us at that time that came over with my parents. Uh, we settled in Washington, D.C. area, and uh, because obviously he worked uh, in Washington, D.C., and then uh, my father went on to work at the National Institutes of Health until his retirement. So uh, I was then raised in the United States in uh, the suburbs of D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland. What was that transition like to the, the U.S. life for you? What was that kind of like? Well, the main thing I remember is that I couldn't speak English. And so I had no way of communicating with people uh, early on and uh, uh, felt like I had been just sort of uprooted, you know, and then dropped into the United States. And it was it was a lonely time and everything was new and foreign and uh, living on the East Coast, uh, you know, in the Washington, D.C. area was hot, humid, sticky, and not knowing much. As I would walk to school, I would take some leaves and put on my eyes uh, and come home and my face would be all puffy uh, because I didn't know what poison ivy was. Oh, no. (laughs) And so my whole face would be uh, swollen from the poison ivy. And so, you know, there are those vivid memories of, of... youth in um, Washington, (laughs) D.C. Going to college was a a big deal because I was the first in my family to leave home and uh, went a little bit wild. I was uh, starting pre-med at the time, but had way too much fun uh, my first year in college. And so my grades were not really... Good. And sort of the condition on which I was able to stay in school would be to, you know, switch over. So I to a less rigorous uh, course uh, schedule at the time. So I switched to nursing. Didn't think very much of nursing. 
uh, it seemed very demeaning at the time because, you know, if you were in the hospital, for example, you would have to stand up and relinquish your chair to the physician when he came in, and it was um, pretty demeaning. And, and uh, you know, so it was trying to figure out a way of, of making meaning out of, out of nursing. And a, a, a friend uh, told me about the Army Student Nurse Program, and it seemed like that aha moment of, well, you could join the military, um, be, have, nursing would have real meaning and significance, and at the same time could give something back to the United States for opening up their opportunities for my father. And so I joined in my junior year of college and um, finished up school and went, uh, uh, as soon as I passed state boards, went right on active duty in Texas and absolutely loved it. Uh, But, you know, in those days, the military was, uh, for women, were still quite restrictive. Uh, Women couldn't be married and join the military. As as a nurse, I couldn't be married and go to college uh, and studying nursing. So it was equally restrictive there. Uh, And then over time, uh, that policy changed. And so I uh, was able to marry a man, and uh, uh, we were both in the military for a period of time, and uh, we're both in Vietnam. Uh, I was there 14 months, and he was there 12, because I extended uh, to uh, try to rotate home at the same time that he did, and so when uh, we came back, we had decided to start our family. I was pregnant, and the military had a policy where uh, women could could be married, but you couldn't have dependents under 16. And so I was forced to leave the military then in 1968. Uh, the policy subsequently changed. And so in uh, 1972, I returned to the military. This time I had one son and I was very pregnant with my second son. Uh, and uh, so that was in 72. And then I continued in the military for um, a career after that. So what did your friends and family think of your decision to, to enlist? Well, in 1961, when I enlisted, there was still the stigma for women uh, that were uh, joining the military were there to have a husband Either they were a whore or they were a lesbian. So the propaganda that had perpetuated itself after the war uh, sort of negated the role of women. Whereas during the war, uh, you know, women participated in many, many significant capacities. And so uh, there was this lingering. And the, the... if you read the literature, the, the conversation about women in the in World War II, especially towards the end, and when they were trying to to reduce the size of um, the the women in the military, it was to uh, really make it seem very negative uh, in terms of their roles and significance. And so the the propaganda was that the only reason that women joined 
were for these secondary gains rather than for wanting to be essentially all that they could be within uh, the military and those opportunities. Uh, so my parents as foreigners to the United States heard the, these conversations from their, uh, their, their friends uh, and were sort of shocked because my parents had been part of the Norwegian resistance and had seen the other side of contributing to a cause. So they, they had this cognitive dissonance from their own experience and from that of their friends, but at the same time were supportive of me in uh, any way that I wanted to uh, pursue my future. Could you tell me a little bit about what your role exactly was in the military? What did you do as a nurse? Well, a nurse in the military, it's like anyone else in the military. You do just everything under the sun. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I had just graduated from college and uh, there were two different avenues for becoming uh, a nurse. One was through a hospital program. Uh, where you became an RN, but you didn't have your bachelor's degree. So there was a certain amount of tension between the nurses who had one type of education versus another. Uh, in, in my case, coming out of college, I had the, the didactic, but not the practical component. So especially the first eight to, eight to 10 months or so, it was really uh, learning how to be a nurse. Uh, as well as how to be an officer and the military gave me the opportunity to do both and so there was the expertise of those who had preceded me and higher ranking who knew that it would take just a little while for uh, a young lieutenant to, to learn how to be a nurse and how to be an, an officer within that framework also and uh, so I started as, um, I think my, my first assignment after boot camp was at Fort Benning, Georgia, where I worked uh, in the women's ward and then subsequently intensive care for a period of months. And then had wanted to go to Germany and got orders and then went to Nuremberg, uh, Germany and was there for two and a half years where I was everything from uh, a staff nurse working recovery and intensive care to a uh, medical ward then became an educational coordinator training um, medics to uh, go to Vietnam uh, because that was the beginnings of uh, the buildup for Vietnam and uh, so the opportunity to train medics to was very challenging to to say the least. Uh, and then after after uh, Germany, uh, end up going to Fort Lee, Virginia, where my husband was also assigned. And then he received orders for Vietnam, and I went to Washington and said. You know, if and when my husband uh, goes, I would like to go also. I didn't want to sit home and wait for that phone call or knock on the door. And uh, so that wish was granted. I got orders and uh, my husband's orders were canceled. Oh. And so I ended up going over first. And 
then his unit uh, came over later on. And in Vietnam, I was head nurse of um, uh, a medical intensive care, just any type of medical situation, um, ward for uh, six months, and then became the head nurse of a neurosurgical intensive care unit for my last eight months in, uh, in, in Vietnam. I was there in um, 67, 68, so it was relatively early mm-hmm. in our uh, time of conflict uh, that we were there. And at that time, I think there was a naiveness uh, of those of us in the military that, well, we were there because of the concern about a domino effect of the countries being just gradually uh, overrun and uh, by communism. And so I, I remember that there was a lot of tension in the civilian community. Uh, and this was still the time of the draft. Uh, and so we were feeling the tension of what was happening at home and politically uh, versus that we were in the military and we obeyed orders regardless of what we did not understand about why we were there. Uh, And that, you know, got worse over the years. Uh, But early on, they were not the same types of issues that, that developed later on with drug abuse and, uh, racial tensions and things like that, that I don't recall seeing or being involved with at all mm-hmm. during my time there. But obviously it, it sort of perpetuated itself as did the, the tensions back here uh, in the United States. But from a perspective of a nurse, uh, it was uh, in the military, it was exactly where you were supposed to be yes. because you were caring for, by and large, the American uh, soldier who was sort of the epitome of the best that America could be. And that was our role. And, uh, you know, I think I became, uh, I mean, the influence of uh, the type of care we learned and participated in of our our soldiers uh, in Vietnam, I think carried with me throughout my career. Uh, I mean, enough so that my last months, uh, eight months in Vietnam uh, and specializing in neuro became the focus of my master's degree and also my PhD. And uh, subsequently, my clinical work at the VA. And uh, so it, it, it had a profound effect. I had to stand on principle and like disobey a direct order from a superior officer, um, uh, fearing that I might lose my career, but that uh, I had to take that stand because of the condition of my patients and I could not leave. And, uh, you know, so there, uh, you know, was a a situation that, uh, you know, you wonder if you have the character to to stand and do what is right. Uh, There was a young man uh, that we cared for in, in Vietnam who had had 
half of his brain blown away. He was unconscious. And usually we try to get patients out within within a week or so after surgery. But he had so many bone fragments that had to be removed. Uh, and he was unconscious, uh, didn't respond for the time that he was there. And I always made a point of talking to the patients before we uh, evacuated them home. And so this fellow, his name was Leroy. I don't know what his last name was, but uh, I certainly remember his first name. And uh, I said, Leroy, uh, we're getting ready to send you home. Uh, and he opened the one eye that he had left I mean, that was a shock effect. I mean, we, we had had no response from him. And here he was opening his eye and I uh, sort of caught myself and then continued to explain to him what the process was going to be, that he would go by helicopter to uh, a medevac plane and then would be flown home to the United States via Japan. And uh, when I was done, he, he gave me the high sign you know, with his fingers, you know, I wept and, you know, everybody else who had been working with him for weeks, you know, were astounded and came and talked to him. And uh, I mean, that was uh, just just a profound moment um, on the good side. And then on a tragic side was a, a young 18 year old who had um, a really a high cervical injury. Uh, and was on a respirator to sustain his life and give him, you know, some time to see whether or not he could uh, get off the respirator so we could evacuate him home. And for three days, uh, he would just, every time the machine would push breath into his lungs, it, he would weep out, uh, help me, help me, help me. And this, this went on for three days uh, while, you know, we tried to do everything we could to um, get him weaned. Uh, but, uh, you know, there was, there was a calmness uh, as, uh, as he died that uh, sort of shook us to the core, essentially, uh, realizing how really helpless we were in some some situations and you know so you carry with you those those memories and um, pictures in your head of these young guys desperately injured and uh, then wondering you know whether death would be better than surviving uh, and being maimed for the rest of their lives. So how would you say that your military service changed you? What did you learn from your experience? Um, well, I, I think I naively um, for a long time believed that the military took care of its own and uh, that there was sort of a trajectory from the military then to support by the VA and regardless of the best of intentions and uh, lip service provided, it, it didn't always happen that way. And uh, uh, so, uh, but, but I, what I learned about myself is that I would stand on principle. Uh, 
do the right thing as I perceived it and uh, tell the truth. On a personal level, I got divorced. I realized years later that I uh, was a lesbian, uh, fell in love with a woman, and uh, that was against military regulations at the time. And so uh, I challenged that. Uh, I told the truth in a top secret security clearance and was subsequently discharged from the military uh, went in, and that's where that feeling of that no, uh, the military didn't take care of its own uh, came about. And uh, so went into federal court uh, and subsequently won my lawsuit and that my discharge was unconstitutional. And I was reinstated and went back in the military for an additional uh, one year of active reserves and then uh, two years of inactive um, sort of to prove a point that you could continue to serve in the military regardless of uh, your sexual orientation. In When my case started, it was in 1991 that it first became public. And even talking about sexual orientation was like a foreign language to society as a whole. Uh, homosexuality was uh, sort of defined by uh, a far radical evangelical um, perspective and that this was, you know, against God and that it was a curse and uh, we were an abomination and uh, child predators and uh, AIDS was, you know, God's, God's gift to homosexuals to get get rid of them. I mean, so, so there was a lot of negative connotation with regard to sexual orientation. And, and so it, you know, I was probably as homophobic as anybody else in terms of what will people say? Uh, will I ever have any friends? Will my kids want anything to do with me? Um, and, and so it was uh, extremely awkward um, you know, I had been a very private person and now it was, you know, for public display. And uh, that was before the movie uh, Serving in Silence and before my book uh, came out. So I was trying to be the spokesperson, I guess, for everybody else who might be in the military and trying to sustain a career uh, that let me do the talking and you stay in and serve. And uh, I think it, it felt, for a long time, it felt really um, uh, sort of like I had to rip open and uh, talk about something that was so personal and yet nobody else's business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what does my sexual orientation have to do with you? Yes. And it really, the, the answer would be yeah. nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet... It, it had taken on such a negative uh, perspective in society that somebody had to, you know, try to flip the switch a little bit uh, to, uh, to begin to talk more about uh, that there were lots of people uh, who happened to be gay or lesbian in society that you never knew about. And of course, the interesting thing is that the minute you open the door, 
somebody else will in the in the group will say, you know, I have a son or my brother or sister happened to be a lesbian. It, it, it's sort of like it gave permission for the conversation to take place yeah. uh, about uh, sexual orientation. And the more you talk, the more people realize that we are just like everybody else. Uh, when uh, President Clinton enacted the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, I became very much of an, I guess, um, activist for human rights uh, and did a lot of uh, educational programs at various universities uh, talking about the adverse effects of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And uh, then on um, in 2010, after 17 years, was invited to lead the Pledge of Allegiance at the signing ceremony for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Ah. And so uh, for me, uh, you know, that whole scenario uh, took a full circle and sort of vindicated my challenge to that existing policy, even though it took a long while um, to get there. Do you think society's perceptions of women changed as a result of their service in the Vietnam era? I think so. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, the role of, of women there, you know, it, it became, I think there were a couple of things. One is that uh, Vietnam was sort of finite. You, you went there for 12 months and unless you extended, then you came back. And, uh, you know, there were many who who did come back and who never talked about the fact that they had been to Vietnam because there was such a negative uh, perception of service members and the work that uh, uh, people did and you know as as a as a nurse and a woman uh, there was also the opportunity to separate that over the years we have seen the roles that women can have. Uh, no longer hindered by gender, but by uh, expertise and what they're able to do. And uh, more recently was the lifting of the ban against women in combat, uh, uh, which is particularly significant since uh, women had been serving in combat and in combat and assigned to combat units as uh, you know auxiliary, but couldn't be part of the unit. Uh, because, for example, in the in the Middle East, uh, you had to have women interrogators. You had to have women where there were women, and so they were there the whole time. But for some, well, uh, for reasons of the military history and bias, they were not given uh, permission to serve in combat, and therefore. Uh, that their experiences there were not reflected in their military records, so that when the, the time came for promotion, they had no there was no way to record the fact that they had been in combat, which is significant when you are vying for promotion uh, in those those higher grades. So the combat exclusion has uh, been lifted. The uh, lifting against, um, you know, women being uh, rangers or uh, there, there is no longer any, uh, I, I don't believe that there are any areas where women cannot work nowadays. And it's always surprising when, I mean, some of us old folks 
thinking of somebody going to ranger training or uh, as a woman and succeeding or excelling. Uh, but, you know, also the military academies uh, op opened up in the, in the mid 70s and they had been exclusionary before also. So there have been innumerable changes. And I think with that, uh, you've not that you don't have individual biases. Uh, you know, the, the commanders may not like someone because of whatever the characteristic is. Uh, so those exist just because we're human. But I think in terms of a system that uh, that has markedly uh, improved over the years. We still have a military that is uh, really highly functional and has a, a, a purpose. Mm -hmm. Over the years, I, I, I have come to realize more and more that, uh, you know, in war, nobody wins. Everybody loses. And that you want to have a military to defend if necessary, but you would hate to have to use it as an offensive weapon. Mm -hmm. And because it all it has cost is 20 years of lives lost. And, and it's not just the lives of people who have died, but the cost to families in when, when individuals come home. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, this, you know, let us stay out of wars. <laughs> let us open up our service to uh, fair treatment for everyone. Uh, it's like I can be judged on the person that I am and the job that I do. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reflections from the Front. We hope you will join us for our next conversation with former Army nurse and World War II veteran Regina Benson on the next episode of this podcast.